John chapter 18, verses 33 through 36. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Amen. You may be seated. As I shared last week, we are um, taking a one-week break from Christian warfare and talking specifically about some of our current events of today. And I chose this passage because I think we learn a lot about what it means to be in this world, but not of the world. To be under the authority of rulers from this world, but ultimately to be under the authority of the only true king. And this week, we experienced a lot of different ups and downs, and maybe in some way these ups and downs are continuing. We've been told that from many different point of views and different areas of the political spectrum that this is the most important election of our lifetime. We've been told that electing the US president is putting into office the most powerful person in the world. And therefore, as citizens, even as Christians and as citizens, we have this responsibility to do all that we can to consider such matters. But also, tragically, more than ever, we have seen the church divided within America on political lines based on whom you voted for and whom you didn't vote for. And with that comes a lot of fear and questioning, even judgments and criticisms from both perspectives. And so the question that remains is, why is the church so lacking in grace and compassion during such times, especially in the midst of a difficult year for so many of us. Is it perhaps that we have believed in a false power, that the power that we think actually rules the world is the world's power? I think more than ever before, we need a biblical perspective. We need to realize that in Christ, we have a power before us that outlasts governments and pandemics and governors and systems and political party. And to do this, I'd like to look at this story of Pontius Pilate and Jesus. That Jesus' words before Pontius Pilate in John 18, 33 to 36 focus on three points that I'd like to reflect on as we navigate such times. First, let's look at the world's power. And then secondly, the church's power. And then thirdly, the king's power. So first, the world's power. And secondly, the church's power. And third, the king's power. So first, let's look at the world's power. This world's power 
is what Jesus refers to in John 18 when he says, the kingdom of this world. And I'd like to read to you this passage again, because I think it's really helpful to remember this, this dialogue between both Jesus and Pilate. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. The kingdom of this world has many different forms. It has political power. It has military power, economic power. And it's often deemed to be about whom you know, how you gain power from that relationship, and how that power of relationship influences all those around us. This power is often gained through deception, sometimes murder, really to do anything necessary to rule. There's a, a, in, a philosopher, writer um, from you know, the 1500s, Machiavelli, and many of you know him, and he wrote The Prince. And oftentimes when we think of that ends, the, the means is really what matters. And if the end is there, we'll do whatever means necessary. It really does justify. And he has that mentality. And I'd like to quote him here because he really describes well this world's power. He says, it is much safer to be feared than love because love is preserved by the link of obligation, which owing to the baseness of men is broken at every opportunity for their advantage. But fear, fear preserves you by a dread of punishment, which never fails. See, that's the idea is that you rule by fear. Fear creates dread. Dread creates obedience. And the world's power is exactly like that. It seems so great sometimes, so overwhelming, so invulnerable, that actually, as much as we say God is powerful, we actually think the world is more powerful than God. And think these past few months, this year has shown us this. Perhaps we are more fearful of a virus than God. If we're honest with ourselves, the way that we act in our hearts reveals that. And if you've been watching the news this past week, I've actually taken about three days to not watch or read the news at all. And it's been really good for my soul, actually. I recommend it. Take a fast for a few days from the news. And by the way, I love reading the news. <laughs> but because the problem is that I tend to actually say God is all-powerful overall, and yet when I read the news, I don't feel that. When I think about a virus, I don't feel that way. I don't believe in my heart God is more powerful than a virus, but he is more powerful than the American government or who's in power or what the Supreme Court looks like. 
You see, we say that God is more powerful, but then we read 2 Corinthians 4.4 and we hear that the, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, meaning Satan is more powerful in this world and because the world influences how I feel, then suddenly I start believing this lie. Satan is more powerful than God. I might not say it, but the way that I'm living and thinking and feeling is actually holding on to that lie, that deception, that Satan is more powerful than God. We see this play out in Jesus' life quite frequently. It actually started in the very beginning. Do you remember King Herod? Herod was a pawn of the Roman government. He had only as much power as Caesar allowed him to have, but he had power, at least in Judah, Judea, in in the Palestine area. And so remember when Herod heard the prophecy about a king being born, and he thought that his reign was going to be threatened by this baby king. And so what does he do? He goes out and puts an order to the region, to the Bethlehem region, where he heard a prophecy was going to be held, where a king was going to be born, and he Basically, it leads to the murder of all these baby boys, hundreds of baby boys. If we think to ourselves, this is the worst time ever, I want you to go back and remember King Herod. Because we don't live in a day and age, at least in terms of babies. Now, I I do think when it comes to abortion, that is the case much more. But when it comes to babies being tossed into the water, by the whims of an insane man. It's chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis describes it, when we think that this time is the worst time. You just haven't lived in those other times where it was really worse times. So trust me when I say this, it is arrogance to think that this is the worst time with the worst leaders ever. This is the most important election ever of the most powerful person ever. The world's power has always been on display with evil. It's always been horrific. And Satan is the one who directs all of that power of the world against God's people. Satan's plan of attack was consistent with what happened in the desert. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. Listen to what Matthew records. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. He's referring to Jesus and showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, you might read that and think, how is that a real temptation to Jesus? Because doesn't he own all that? Well, here's the thing is that when Jesus came into this world, you already got a glimpse of it from Herod taking advantage and really bringing murders upon the world around Jesus. This was a time period where Rome was dominant and Satan was tempting Jesus with the idea that, you know, don't take the hard road. Be comfortable. Um, Utilize your powers. You could be king. You don't have to actually surrender your life and turn to the idea of dying and suffering, why not just actually be king now? 
You know, why go on this mission of saving sinners? You don't have to do that. Just be king. Do you see if Satan knew the prophecies, he knows scripture, he knows that there will be an end to him, but he also knows that there's gonna be a suffering servant, that there has to be a road and a path to that, that direction, that way, and he wants to deter Jesus from that. So if Jesus would just take up arms, control the world through political powers, overthrow the Roman government, everything would be okay. And then the rest of the Gospels tells that narrative. Do you remember after the temptation of the desert in, by Satan, Jesus eventually feeds 5,000 miraculously. And people were so amazed by him. They were enamored. He became so popular that actually the gospel writers record that they wanted to make him a king in that moment. And that would be a constant theme. In John 6, 15, it says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The messianic secret in Mark is all about this idea of Jesus denying himself, not wanting to be a political king, a military king, but rather to be the king of kings. But that would take suffering. It would take a road very different than the worldview as power. Now let's fast forward to Jesus' arrest. When Peter drew his sword in the garden at Jesus' arrest, another attempt for Jesus to stand up for his rights, to claim the power of the world. John records what happens. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So again, another attempt by the disciples to say, use political military power to bring about your kingdom. Don't worry about anything else but that. That's what we want. We want power. And then at the cross, Matthew 27, 42 records this. He saved others, people said. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Again, the, the same idea, the satanic idea of you claim power through making it revealed in the ways that we want it to be revealed, the world's way, and that's what will rule the world. Even at the cross, people were mocking him with that idea. So the power of the kingdom of the world is always the same. Get enough money, enough prestige, know enough people, have enough military power, political influence, have a, enough secret information to undermine your enemies and your opponents, and do that and you will rule the world. That's the enemy's plan. That's his master plan to destroy God's people and stop Jesus from actually turning hearts to himself. It's been that way since the garden. And so the question that remains is, how do we as the church respond to that type of power? How do we live as God's people with that in mind? How do we interact? How do we influence a world for Christ when the world says power is based on military might, economics, influence, whom you know. 
Let me tell you what we must not do and what we must do if we are in Christ. And I'm going to speak about the church's power. The church's power is not the world's power. The church must never be, uh, the church's power must never be ultimately derived from the world's power. But oh, it's a temptation. It really is. We see this in Jesus' words before Pontius Pilate when he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. There were so many different opportunities for Jesus to actually wield these powers. He could have overcome the Jewish leaders, Rome, Satan, but he knew full well that to battle Satan in the desert was not to use the world's powers, though he could have. It's not as though he couldn't have turned the stone into bread. He decided not to because he decided not to play into the very trap that Satan was setting him in, which is use the world's powers for your own benefit and everything will be okay. That's a satanic trap. It is the trap to avoid physical suffering, to avoid hardship, to be comfortable in this world as it is. And for those of us who are in Old Testament theology this week, we, have, we saw to be comfortable in a world where Satan rules is no comfort at all. It is hell. And so if Jesus were to have just simply conquered as an earthly king with political might, that would have been no different than what Satan ruled. Jesus would have come down to Satan's level and in essence, dare I say it, but be no different than Satan himself. But instead, he did not do that. He, did, he knew that to actually obey the Father's will, to reign spiritually is to also reign physically. And to reign physically and spiritually is to actually overthrow the enemy and all of his schemes. We see this in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So we church must never think that the world's power is the answer to power, to reign, to rule. Jesus didn't think that way, and we must not. Also, Jesus could easily destroy the world's power. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 26, 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? What Jesus is saying there is the world's power is nothing compared to the power of the kingdom of God. We must never think that the world's power is so great that Jesus cannot overcome it. To do so is at best short-sighted and at worst idolatrous. Jesus is the Lord of the universe. There's no earthly power that he cannot overcome. And so the next time we are tempted to think that the world is falling apart because someone, whomever that is, is president of the United States, whether you favor one or the other, our government is not the reason why we need to fear or be frustrated or anxious. 
If you are tempted to think that we're losing society because this person is president, these people are in the Supreme Court, these people rule over Congress, if we think that way, then we have lost sight of who is in control. It is not the American government. It is Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. A great example of this truth is Jesus' interchange with Pontius Pilate a little bit later from our text in chapter 19, verses 10, and 10 through 11. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? I almost detect Jesus' laugh in verse 11. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus knows. He's telling us all governmental authority comes from above. So why is it that we who are Christians who believe that to be true can be so anxious about who rules in authority, even if they are the most wicked of people? The church will never overcome Satan through the world's power. It just won't happen. We see this in the Gospels and Paul's letters. Jesus refused, absolutely refused, to overcome the world's power through the world. It was going to happen solely by the power of above. Peter and Paul refuses that temptation when he reminds the church to submit to authority. Even under some terrible leadership, we might be, again, this is chronological snobbery to think that we have the worst leaders. But trust me, you don't want Nero as a leader. You don't. And that's who Peter served under. Remember what happened to all the apostles. Do you remember what happened to all of them? They were all killed for believing in Christ. Only one, John, was not, but he was exiled in Patmos. You know, we think, I have to be quarantined for two weeks because of COVID. Imagine being, he was uh, quarantined for life by himself on the island of Patmos. So all the disciples were killed, one quarantined for life. I don't know, to me, that just sounds not that great of leadership to live under. And yet we think as Christians, oh, that person is in leadership, so therefore we're living under such hardship. Oh, my friends, like I said, I do believe that's chronological arrogance to think such ways. The church has never overcome Satan and brought people to himself through government. It just hasn't happened. And actually, every time there's an attempt to do so, it's pushed people further away from the gospel. We see this from Constantine's Edict of Milan in church history all the way through. Once the church and government aligned together throughout church history, actually the gospel and its power was stunted. There was a, a real... Just examine church history from about A.D. 313 all the way to the Reformation. And during that dark period, very few were turning to Christ in their hearts. They were turning to Christ because under the, the force of a sword, under threat of losing your life and your, your financial well-being, 
the world never turns to Jesus because of who's in power politically. Because the world's power never changes hearts, but the king's power does. What is the king's power? You know, one verse that lays it out so clearly for us is Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly for those who are perishing. That's the world's power. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God is not found by those who look at the cross. And remember, the cross was a tool of execution by an unjust, tyrannical government. And that government had imposed their will on this carpenter's son, who seemingly was nothing more than a rabble-rouser. But that execution instrument in spiritual eyes is the power of God. That's what changes hearts and minds. Jesus didn't tell Pilate he was not a king. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. And that's something that you have to keep in mind. It's not, I'm not a king. It's, I am a king, but I'm not going to settle for being a world's king, which is so limited in its power and scope because what happens with kings? They die. You know, follow, and, and if you follow uh, the English monarchy, the Tudors, who are really powerful with Henry VIII and the Henrys, and Elizabeth I, right after Elizabeth I, dynasty ends. Then the Stuarts come into power. And that we see that throughout every single dynasty. The problem with kings of this world is they never last. And Jesus is saying, I'm not the king of this world because that's too menial. I don't want to be a king of this world. I'm the king of kings. My reign is supreme and it's eternal. And it's over all, not just this world, but the spiritual world over angels and demons, over cherubim and seraphim. My kingdom is, if I were to just call out even one angel, it would wipe away the whole world. So I'm not settling for the kingdom of this world. And yet we Christians so often believe the lie that the kingdom of this world is more powerful than the kingdom of the world to come. That is a lie. Paul describes our powerful king this way in Philippians 2, 10 through 11. At the name of Jesus, I could say King Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This kingship and power is not dependent on politics or economics or military might or intelligence. The power that can impact physical lives is very weak. Woefully does it fall short because you can't change a heart for Jesus. This is how powerful the spiritual king, the spiritual world is. In the physical world, you can change people based on a gun or a bomb or a million dollars. But in the spiritual world, you cannot change a heart to follow Christ if you have a gun or have a million dollars, or have a bomb. That's how powerful the heart is. No one can change a heart by any means except for the sovereign power of our God. And Jesus has defeated the greatest, most powerful enemy this world will ever know, Satan 
and sin. And how did he do it? Paul says at the cross, at the tomb, Satan has been defeated, sin vanquished, death forever. So Jesus' reign is perfect and forever, and nothing can separate us from his love. If this is true then, we believe this to be true, then how should it impact the way that we live as a church, as a believing community of Christ? First, I'm just going to get a little practical. It should cause us to enjoy our diversity. And even though there is diversity, we're unified. We've often talked a lot about diversity on, in the arena of um, ethnic diversity or socioeconomic diversity. But I also want to throw in another type of diversity, political diversity. You know, within Jesus' 12 disciples, he had two that were very political, actually. One was Simon the Zealot. I don't know if you understand what a zealot is, is that the reason why they were zealous and they were a zealot is because they were Zionistic, Jewish insurrectionists against the Roman Empire. Because the Roman Empire had controlled that region and the Jews who wanted to be freed from the yoke of the Roman Empire, they were zealots. They wanted to rebel. They wanted to take up arms against the Roman Empire. And Simon, who was one of the disciples called by Jesus, was one of those people. He was an insurrectionist. And you know the type of person he hated the most? Collaborators. Everyone who is an insurrectionist hates collaborators. And you know who is a collaborator? Matthew, the Levite. Uh, Levi, not the Levite, Levi. He was a tax collector. What did tax collectors do? They went to their own people and they collected taxes for the Roman government. You say, but isn't that a necessity? Well, oftentimes, not only would he collect the way that they made money, and a lot of it is that if they were to collect $1,000 from a person, they'd collect $1,200 because they would skim the top off for themselves. So they would not only do the bidding of the Roman government, but they were also cheating their own people for their own benefit. These are the two people in Jesus' discipleship core. They spent 24 hours a day, seven days a week for three years together. Can you imagine the political discussions they must have had? Um, I, I just wonder. One sided with Trump. One sided with Biden. But a lot worse than that. A lot worse. But yet, what defined them? Do you know both of them at the end of their days lost their lives? for the sake of Christ. Because as important as, and it wasn't that they just said, oh, those things don't matter anymore. It's that they were secondary in importance. The first importance was the gospel of Christ. Jesus was more important than those things. We should be able to be in a church where someone votes for Trump, someone votes for Biden, and if someone says, well, who did you vote for? I voted for Trump. And the first thing is, what's wrong with you? What, are you dumb? You stupid? How could you do that? Or I voted for Biden. Don't you care about babies? How could you, how could you be so evil? See, our instinct is to vilify the other person based on a political label. Oh, I tell you, when we do that, you forget about Jesus. You forget that actually Jesus' power 
is greater than both of those men, whoever's in control. And even if they were evil, even if they were unjust, we still trust God in the midst of it because we still believe that God is more powerful. I'll tell you 10,000 years from today, you won't really care at all who was in power, what this election was like. You won't care about COVID. 10,000 years from today, you won't. But you will care a lot about who is ultimately in power, a lot. So listen to Ephesians 2.19 when Paul says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Remember your ultimate citizenship. It is not to the United States of America or other countries. It is to you. If you are in Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. And that defines our relationship. Once that happens, we're household of God. That's who we are. We're brothers and sisters. So remember also Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The division are broken. The dividing wall has been abolished. In Christ, we are united. There are, there are markers, characteristics. We're not just uh, losing our identity uh, as an individual person, but our unity is what marks us most. It's what defines us most in Christ. So if you find out someone voted for this person, someone voted for that person, I really pray that your first instinct would to fight this sense of judgmentalism as though that is the most important thing about a person. Regarding COVID, I know some of us are more conservative about being about the pandemic and some of us are more liberal about it. And it's an area where I think we need to, again, be mindful of the fact that we're in Christ together. We're a family. We're not on our own. And so even if, let's say, half of the people in our church were to come down with COVID, how would we respond to that person? Would we be compassionate and caring? We'd be thinking, how can I care for you? Or we'd be thinking, who did you, who did you talk to? Stay away from me. <laughs> you know, you're dangerous. It's, it's really an amazing time. It's either an opportunity, a time period for fear and judgmentalism and legalism, or it's a time for grace, compassion, mercy, and worship. I wish that our church would be a place where we can actually embrace people of all different persuasions because we believe in Jesus. That I can respect a person who votes differently than I do or has a different view on COVID than I do. And I will even protect them, protect their willingness to even have a different perspective, but still always be mindful of the fact that we are in Christ together. Also, when we respond this way, we are loving, not angry. The world's power says, be angry, fight for your rights. But the king's power says this in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How does the world know we're the church? It's definitely not going to be if we endorse a particular political candidate. 
or if we have a, a view or we're marching around in the middle of the street, the way that we're going to be able to show that we are the Christ disciples, that we worship a king, is when we love one another. And that's when we're merciful, when we're kind. When we are different ethnically and socially and racially and, yes, even politically, and yet we still treat one another with respect and dignity and love. That's when the world knows that we are his disciples. Because look at the world now. If you hold a certain position, then you hold, you must hold to disdain the other side, right? That's how the world operates. But when the church operates by two different camps and yet we're able to show dignity and respect and love and kindness and compassion to one another, that's different than the world and it stands out. So the king's power is rooted on this love. Also, that we are subject, but not idolatrous. Peter writes about this in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Because we do not believe the world's power has ultimate power, because we also believe that Jesus is supreme and Lord and King, we can submit to governmental authority. And one thing we know is that the authority that the disciples were under was absolutely unjust and tyrannical. So Peter and Paul are not saying this with a really awesome king ruling over their, the, that political realm. It was in the midst of injustice. There were a lot of bad things happening and much more to come for Christians. So many lost their lives. And yet, you notice throughout church history, at least in this early church period, we never hear of a, of a revolution, of bearing arms and trying to fight back the political kingdom of this world. Because the Christians, as we see in Hebrews 11, believe that the kingdom to come is far more powerful far more worthy to even die for, for the sake of knowing Christ. So remember, we are subject to this government, but we're not, we don't idolize it either. There are times that we must sometimes even go against the kingdom of this world. I'm not, that's a whole nother message and a whole nother topic as to what those times are and what the exceptions are and all that. But I will say this is that our default that is truly the exception, according to Paul and Peter in Romans 13 and here in 1 Peter. The default is that we are subject, we pray for those who are in power, regardless of whether we actually believe what they believe or think what they're doing is just. We still pray for them. And we trust. You know what we trust ultimately? We trust God. We believe in Romans 12 that vengeance is mine. God says, I will repay. So it's not, oh God, let them get away with injustice. It's, I believe there will be justice met. It might not be in this world, but trust me and trust God in his word. The justice that God repays is far, far more horrific on those who are unjust than anything this world could try to implement in terms of justice. So yes, fight for and 
really um, encourage justice in this world, but know that we'll never get perfect justice in this world because God will be the one who will mete it out. Also, we are trusting, not fearful. The psalmist in Psalm 27 says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Dear friends, do not place your hope in who is president. Do not place your hope in Congress or in the media or in the Supreme Court or in ballot initiatives. Do not place your hope in vaccines or in your safety or in your health. Place your hope in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And this means that you fight fear all the time. Fear is a, really a byproduct of sin. Again, I've mentioned this before, but it is the number one command of the Lord. He says it over and over again in the Gospels. Just look at, just do a concordance study on it. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. That's a command. That's not a hope by Jesus. That means that actually, if it's a command, it would be unjust of God or Jesus to give us that command if it was impossible to not fear. That means that actually we can keep from fearing, but it takes effort, it takes intentionality, it takes being in God's word, it takes prayer, it takes surrounding ourselves with this desire to want to fight that fear. We have to battle that sin. Jesus tells us, fear not what can kill the body, fear what can kill the soul. And I do believe too many of us are so afraid about what can kill the body right now that it is dictating how we live and how we view God and how we view the world and how we view loving and loving our neighbor as ourself, extending mercy and kindness and compassion to people. Do not fear what can kill your body. And that goes for political leaders, governments, viruses, um, weapons, it used to be in the 1950s that people most feared atomic war. And that's shifted. You know, so every era has a new fear that Satan uses against us. But you have to fight that. And I love how George Lehman puts it. When the fire is raging, there are two types of people. One, they're going to run away from the fire and some that are going to run towards it. And their desires, some are going to say, let me save myself. And some are going to run towards and say, is anybody in that fire? I need, to, I need to help them. I need to rescue them. Well, I hope that Wellspring, we have a lot of people, everyone, who is running towards the fire and saying, how can I help? Even if it means harm to yourself. Lastly, and to me, this is one that really helps us in this fight of faith. We have an eternal perspective, not a fleeting one. Listen to 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then let me read one more. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What helps you in this fight of faith against fear? I've mentioned it now two or three times. I'm going to say it again. What are you going to be doing 10,000 years from today? That's what Peter's talking about in 2 Peter and Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 4. What are you going to be afraid of 10,000 years from today? You know, we sing that song, bless the Lord, O my soul. You know, it's called 10,000, 10,000 years. I sing that song and I always think, that's true. Do I believe that? Or is that just some nice words for us as Christians to sort of think about mythologically as a fantasy land? But if it is true, 10,000 years from today, none of you will be thinking about a virus. You won't care who's president at all. Because for God, 10,000 years is but a day. But we get so caught up, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be thinking about the moment at all, but let us have that eternal perspective. Some of you know that uh, uh, he's a blogger and author and pastor, Tim Challies. His son died this past week, literally all of a sudden. Um, College student, and he was at his college and just playing in the courtyard, as college students do, and literally falls, dies. I'm not sure why, whether it was a cardiac arrest or whatever it might be. But in reading some of the things he's written about it, it's just that idea that, you know, God is sovereign. He's still good. He's wise. And he is Lord of all. We are made for much more than even this time. But whether you're two years old, 20 years old, or 100 years old, relative to 10,000 years, we won't look back and say, oh, I lived such a short period of my life. We won't. What we're living here is but a, a literally a, a speck of dust in the context of eternity. I mean, really, this is not reality, if you think of it that way. Our future with the Lord is reality. And this is but pointing to that end. And so how you live right now and what you are afraid of, what you are anxious about, says a lot about whether you believe that to be true or not. Do you see what Peter and Paul are saying? You need the king's power. You need to remember he's in control. He is. So we can go through each day smiling, even if the person we voted for didn't win. Even if you were hoping certain things would play out in certain ways. Even if, even if, and you're so glad, maybe some of you are so glad. It's like someone sent me a text saying, as soon as the, um, the election ended, and, and I don't even know because I've been following for the past two or three days, but he sent me a, a text that said, ding dong, the witch is dead. The wicked witch is dead. <laughs> yeah, and you know where he stands. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I, was, I was just sort of laughing at that, and I was thinking, this is the way that we think of this world, and it's, it's sad. And it's really sad if the church is so caught up in all this. Thanks be to God that we believe in a sovereign God who's in control. I hope you have peace. And some of you, you need to take a fast from news for a little bit as well. 
<laughs> just just stop reading the blogs and all the you know all your different news feeds just stop and just take a break step back remember the king is in control let's pray together father we just want to give thanks to you you are the lord there is none like you and for those of us who perhaps have been way too caught up with what is happening around this world we want to remember right now, Father, that you are Lord. You are master. And we need not be afraid. So we thank you, Father, for your goodness. Thank you for your son who has defeated sin, death, and the devil once and for all. So there is no earthly power that can do what you can do. There is no amount of military might. And we praise you, O Lord that no matter what happens in our life, we can rest assured that you reign, you are in control, you are supreme and Lord. We worship you, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.